0: finished the amphitheater, and when we looked at the Beatitudes, and I talked about how we had nine weeks, and it was real convenient of Jesus to give us nine Beatitudes. So that just fit perfectly. And um, we, we called it the Great Reversal. And uh, we're calling this series the same. We're moving right into the Sermon on the Mount. And we call it the Great Reversal because Jesus, with the Beatitudes, is taking people where they've never gone before. So it's just kind of a review of the Beatitudes. to set the stage for the opening uh, sentence in his sermon. So the Beatitudes are a genre that go way back into history. We have them as far back as the ancient Greeks. And they... um, They created this whole idea of blessed are the gods. That's how it started. Blessed are the gods. Homer talked about that. Blessed are the gods because honestly, they don't have to live with all the stuff that we have to live with. All the brokenness and the the pain and the agony. They're way above all that. So they must be happy to be up there. Blessed are the gods. Well, then it didn't take very long before that that same type of literature began to be applied to wealthy people and the rulers and the elite. Blessed are those who are in charge, the emperors, that sort of thing. Kings, because they don't have to put up with all the stuff that we put up with on a daily basis. At the same time that that's happening in world history, alongside of that, the Old Testament is coming along, and the uh, authors of the Old Testament begin to, in the Psalms and various other places, Uh, talk about really how blessed it is to live in God's presence. It's a little different than what the uh, Greeks were saying, how blessed it is to live in God's presence. That's true. And they began to talk about the state of being uh, blessed are those who are forgiven by God, who live in his presence, uh, that sort of thing. And so then Jesus comes along and surprises everybody. And he takes the values that... The world despises in the brokenness of the world all that the rulers would look down on. uh, And he would say, no, those are actually the blessed people. The ones that are down on the bottom. The ones that live life every day in a state of brokenness. And so the power of these beatitudes lies in the fact that it's the complete opposite of what the world thinks. It's the complete opposite. That the ones who are most blessed are the ones who live day to day. So you remember the, you were there this summer, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers and those who are persecuted. And all along the way, he took these common ideas and he, he changed them. He revamped some of the thinking. For example, the, uh, you look at blessed are the merciful. Um, those who show mercy to others that's not an attribute that the world held very highly it's just not that's not what they did blessed are the ones who are in charge they're the ones who are blessed the ones who are happy or blessed are those who mourn and Mark asked when he talked about that how many of you woke up this morning and said I think I want to mourn some more today right? That's not not the way it works. So Jesus is describing those who actually uh, live this out. They live it out all the time. By the way, merciful. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the idea of showing mercy to someone was really more the idea of showing pity. I'm glad I'm not you. You know? And Jesus changed that, and the New Testament comes along and revamps that and says, no, really compassion is what we're after. Compassion is one equal to another equal saying, you're going through something, what can I do to help you? How can I engage you in your life? Those are the ones who are blessed. And so the people that live the daily lives in a broken world are actually the ones who are blessed. And today we're going to talk about why that's even true. Before we get there, though, I want to talk. Today is the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, which is a Jewish holiday. In the second service, we actually have a rabbi here that we're going to interview. Uh, We as a church are hosting the the Jewish population up here for the next two days. Let me tell you a little bit about Rosh Hashanah. It's a time of rejoicing as well as serious introspection. It's a time to celebrate the completion of one year and the beginning of another year. That's really what it's all about. There's two days of Rosh Hashanah, and uh, we're going to have a Jewish group here for the next two days. Um... This holiday ushers in ten days of repentance, known as the days of awe, which culminates in the major celebration of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which actually is in the Bible. So the Rosh Hashanah itself is not in the Bible, but Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like our Lent, leading up to Easter. Okay? So we celebrate Lent, which is a preparatory time to lead us to remember what Christ did on the cross. That's what this is all about. And so the whole purpose of this is to take time, um, among the Jewish people celebrating, to take time and take stock of their own lives. And they talk about atonement. Really what they're talking about is taking action to correct whatever was wrong in this previous year. Now, as Christians, when we hear the concept of atonement, we think of what Jesus did on the cross, which is really great. It's true and all of that. But there's something worth paying attention to here in this in this holiday. When you stop and the sins that you've committed over the previous year, are you forgiven? Yes you are. But there's a lot more to life than simply forgiveness. Because the whole nature of sin is not really an individual issue, it's a community issue. And so Yom Kippur is about the, whole, the day of atonement for the whole community. And so they celebrate this aspect where they look at their own lives and say, what did I do this past year that I need to correct? I need to make atonement for. Um, I need to perhaps move into someone else's life, somebody that I've hurt. I wonder what would happen if we celebrated that a little bit more, because we tend to celebrate the theological piece where Jesus, yeah, he atoned for our sins. But what about the community piece, the relational piece of the the hurt that we cause others and the way we maybe bring destruction, brokenness into our own world. So if you hang around for the second uh, service, if you're interested, at the beginning of the sermon, we're going to interview her and she's going to tell you more directly about uh, what it's about. But that's what we're doing. We're hosting, hosting them for the next uh, couple of days. So what would happen in our world? You know what's going on in our world. I don't have to tell you. You read the headlines like I do. I don't know if there's two people in politics that actually know how to have a conversation together. It seems to me like there's not. What would happen if we, the church, our Jewish uh, predecessors, our Jewish friends, if we celebrated a time where we say, what is it that I'm doing that is hurting this? I wonder what that would look like. If the world saw us doing that, if our own county saw us taking the time to humble ourselves and saying, you know... We own this. This is our country. We own it. Um, It's easy to point the finger, isn't it? And yet, I suspect every one of us is guilty of what our politicians are doing, just perhaps on a quieter level. And what would happen if we took responsibility and said, we own that as well. We are to be peacemakers. We truly are. We are to live out these beatitudes in the world around us. Just a thought. So... In light of that, Jesus' opening statement in the sermon after the Beatitudes is, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. So just as the Beatitudes were an introduction to a revolutionary new way of thinking about life and all of that, this passage is a gateway, the Beatitudes, to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read to you Matthew five, thirteen through 16, this paragraph. You are the salt of the earth. There it is. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill... Cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your poor others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So his opening statement is, You are the salt of the earth. That's just after the Beatitudes. Who's he talking to in this sermon? He's talking to people sitting. It's called the Sermon on the Mount or in Luke, they call it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, he's sitting in front of a bunch of Israel. He's sitting in front of the nation of Israel, a bunch of Jewish people. And he says, he describes what, the, what truly blessed people look like. And at this time of uh, history, Israel had lost some of its way. And they had adopted some of the world's uh, values. And he's recalibrating that. And said, no, this is actually what, what God is interested in. So once he's gone through the Beatitudes, then he says, you are the salt and the light of the world. You live out these Beatitudes, you're accomplishing God's purpose. So that's the beginning. So Jesus is calling the Israel of his day to be Israel. To be, to be the people of faith. To be the people that the world looks at. And so, therefore, by extension, it's going to apply to us as well. He's calling it to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. So salt in the ancient world, Mark alluded to it this morning, salt in the ancient world had several properties. I was reading this week that over a hundred different ways that they could use salt. When you look in the scriptures, salt plays two predominant roles in the Old Testament. Now, remember, Jesus didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't been written. So his Bible is what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. So when he starts to talk, just like Paul, when Paul spoke, what does he have available to him? He has the Jewish scriptures, he has the Jewish writings of the day, and he has the oral tradition about Jesus. Imagine sitting down and trying to write Romans, when all you have available to you is the Jewish, are the Jewish scriptures. That's a feat. That's a feat. So here we have the beginning of Jesus' teaching when he comes. Remember, the exile has ended. The Messiah has come. And now he's beginning to teach what the kingdom is all about in, in a very real way. So, salt was very significant. Its two primary um, uses in the, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, were to be a seasoning of some kind and to preserve. We actually have examples of both of those. Job 6 6, for example, is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the sap of the mallow? So that's one of the things that it did. It provided seasoning. We're going to come back and say, well, what does that got to do with us? In just a second. Numbers eighteen nineteen. you have the idea of preservation. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and your daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt. Isn't that an interesting use of the word Salt. And this occurs several times. It's an, it's an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. As a preservative, it's important, its importance made it a natural symbol for the covenant. It goes on and on. It preserves. That's what God does. So we are we are both the seasoning and the preservation. And somehow I think we're actually losing that in today's world. As our churches retract, in light of all the legal issues and the attacks on Christianity and all of the dissension and fighting in the political world, we have churches that are pulling back and hiding. And I would suggest that, that our primary role in the world is to be both the seasoning and... For a world that is lost and dark. So how are we seasoning? What does that mean we are seasoning? When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Okay, seasoning is spice. Seasoning makes food interesting, doesn't it? It's interesting that Nancy and I, we, uh, I'm a wasted husband on Nancy. She has like 285 spices in our kitchen, it seems like, drawer after drawer. She loves spices. And when she asks me, what would you like on your chicken? I say, how about salt and pepper? <laughs> and it's so disappointing. I try to pretend that I like all these spices that she puts on them, but that's just not the way I'm wired. I'm kind of a meat and potato guy's. A guy, you know? And so we always have this ongoing discussion, which we've had all these years, about the role of spices. Spices make food interesting. They make it different, don't they? And so how is it we move into the world in a way that makes it interesting? Makes it sweet? Makes it savory? How does that happen? That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, when you learn to mourn well, you know what happens? How many of you, first of all, have mourned the loss of somebody? Let me just see. That's what I thought. I think almost every one of you. When you get into Paul's writings, he talks about those um, who mourn, they know how to show sorrow. They know how to show genuine sorrow because they have walked that road before. And how refreshing is it When you mourned, if you had somebody to sit with you, not to tell you all the right answers, not to give you the platitudes of what you're supposed to think. I never will forget when my first wife died, um, a Christian came up to me. Uh, I was sitting at my desk, and that wave of loneliness rushed over me, washed over me, and I just had these intense tears for a few moments. And um, pretty soon, I'm wiping my eyes. the wave passed and I got back to work so one of the Christians comes up to me and said you just need to learn to rely on the inner strength that Jesus provides (laughs) I did it that way so it's not on tape and I just looked at him and I said what do you think I'd be doing if I wasn't doing that that's not very helpful is it if you've ever sat with someone if you're going through it and you've sat with someone that's ahead of you on the road they don't often have a lot of words, do they? What they have is silence and a hug. I still remember one of my very, very good friends. Um, about one in the morning, I was just hurting so badly, and I just called him, and he got up. didn't say a word. He said, I'll be right over. Drove over, came over, and just sat next to me, put his arm around me, and let me cry for about 30 minutes. Didn't say a word. And I got down, and he said, can you go back to sleep? So said, yeah, and he goes, okay. See you later, and left. How, how refreshing is that? Is that refreshing? You see, these Beatitudes, these are not just things that we talk about academically. These are the things that describe relationally what we're going through as a community and the way we connect with one another. And so whatever it is, you can look at any of them. Would you rather be with somebody that's compassionate and merciful or someone that shows pity? Would you rather be with somebody that's hungry for truth or somebody that's arrogant has got it all figured out. Blessed are those who hunger. Right? And so the way that we are seasoning, the way that we provide that sense of, of something different and refreshing is by genuinely living out these beatitudes and recognizing that they are from God. One of my best friends, um, she has two boys, was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. So we had uh, lunch with her and her husband and asked her, what What are you saying to the boys? They're like 8 and 10. What are you saying to the boys? And she said, you know, I thought about it for about a whole day after I found out. I was pretty shocked. Yeah, hello. And uh, she says, I sat, I sat down with the boys and I said, I have cancer. Very, very serious cancer. And... Um, I want you to know that I trust the Lord Jesus. I trust God. He may take me away and he may not, but it's his choice. But I want you to know that I have faith that he knows the right thing to do. And I said, wow, that's, that's an amazing statement to make to your two boys. And she said, you know, I could cry and I could get angry. I could do all that. That's all human. It's just not redeemed human. And she said, I have an obligation to my children to pass on my faith. That, that's what we're talking about here, is authenticity. These beatitudes are about authenticity. And we are seasoning when we, in the world around us, when we are authentic as Christians, as redeemed people, when we are authentic in our faith and we come alongside and help them. What about preservation? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Whenever God, and this is my basic hermeneutic on scriptures, uh, you've heard this many times over the years, whenever God speaks or acts in culture, in our world, he does so for the purpose of redemption. In other words, he is fixing something that's broken. So if you could go back and take any verse in the Bible, if you can look in the cultural context of what's happening and you understand what's broken, then you can see how God is redemptive. So, the very nature of God is to move into our world consistently in a redemptive way. That's His nature. He created it. He doesn't like it broken, He doesn't like the fallenness of it. He doesn't like that at all. So, when He moves into our world, He does that to fix what's broken. That's called redemption. And that's our responsibility. Back in Jeremiah 29, 7, a famous verse. I think you probably have all heard it. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Now, this isn't Jeremiah. This is just in the final days of the southern kingdom before Jerusalem is destroyed. And they're taken away into exile to Babylon. These are some of the final words of the prophet Jeremiah. And he said, you are going into exile. Pray for the city and, and, and put the city first, the peace and prosperity of the city. You see, that is our responsibility, I'm convinced. Culture care is the responsibility of the church. If we say nothing, the world deteriorates. Prior to 1500 B.C., when the Ten Commandments were given, I don't know of any place where murder was discussed morally. C.S. Lewis argued that we all have a moral compass, it's just broken, it cannot find true north. We take it for granted because we're raised in a culture where these values have been long established, but there's nothing inside of you that leads you to those right values. If God had never spoken into our world, we would not have known that murder was morally wrong. When you look at the ancient documents before the giving of the Ten Commandments, they talked about murder, but it wasn't from a moral perspective. It's from a practical perspective. So if I murder one of you, we're going to have trouble in our fellowship. But we have no compunction about murdering the people across the valley. It wasn't a moral issue. And so when God spoke into our world through the Ten Commandments, He introduced the concept of morality. And that's true with everything that flows out of the the Old Testament. You see, we actually are a conscience. We should be to a broken world. I love the argument well you can't legislate murder really We, I mean you can't legislate morality really we legislated murder we legislated greed for those of you accountants the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and all of that right we legislate morality all the time the reversal of some of that is a statement as well the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage don't know what your positions are I know some of them But that's a statement on morality, whether you agree with it or not. And so the the government is always doing that. And that should be what they do. And we should have a voice in that. We should say something about that. We do provide a conscience so that the world just doesn't fracture and fragment and go off a cliff. Seek the prosperity and the peace of the city where I'm sending you. And so that is one of the primary roles of the church, to be a preservative within culture. That we, we, we don't fight. That's not what we do. We don't fight. We engage in very healthy dialogue to see what we can do to make it better. I'm very interested in seeing how I can make Dillon and Summit County better as a church. That's a high priority to me. So what about light, the second metaphor? You are the salt and the light. Light's a very powerful metaphor throughout the Bible. Matthew had already introduced this light by quoting Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, In chapter 4, he says, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The people living in darkness is typically used to express the Gentiles, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. This is one of the Christmas passages. The Messiah has come and the light begins to shine. So God's desire is to bring light, just like it's to bring seasoning, and to preserve culture, and to fix what's broken. His, his uh, desire is also to bring light to a dark world. Isaiah predicted that the coming Messiah would shed light in this dark world in Isaiah 60. The sun will no more by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord himself will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. And the Lord, the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. When you read Revelation, you see this language in Revelation. So, the coming Messiah would bring this light to a dark world. And Jesus' use of the metaphors of the city hidden on a hill and a lamp right here are talking about that very thing. They reveal Our purpose. Our purpose is to bring light to a dark world. That's what our purpose is. It's very easy to do. You don't have to argue. I've sat down with many people around this county that don't go to church and just said, so what's your your story? Do you have a faith background? I'm absolutely astounded at how many of them have a faith background that they walked away from. I'm just astounded by it. And that always makes me curious. Tell me what happened. Why'd you walk away? You know you know what I found throughout the county? That people had a bad experience in church somewhere. And so what they're doing is they're trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're trying to throw religiosity, which is what we practice. They throw it out. But they're also trying to throw out their spirituality at the same time. And they can't quite do it. You never can quite get rid of those earlier values that are put inside. I've had so much fun with people and asked them, so are you trying to throw out your spirituality with your religiosity? And they said, yeah, I suppose I am. Don't do that. I understand throwing out religiosity. we got lots of reasons to, to hate what happens in church. Good night. Look at the leaders on both the Catholic and the Protestant side and what's going on. We should hate that. But don't throw out your faith with it. Let's fix whatever the problem is that, that made us hate these practices. But don't throw it out. We bring lights to the world by simply talking to people and being honest with them and asking them questions. If you've never done it, go to one of your long-term friends and say, you know, I don't think we've ever had a conversation about faith. I'm a Christian. Do you have a faith background? I'd be curious to hear what your background is. They're not going to hit you. They're not going to spit on you or mock you. They're going to tell you a story. Be curious. Be curious. The goal of shining our light so that others may know uh, is so that others may know uh, the God that we serve. Uh, I don't know about you, but everywhere I go, down at the marina, Pugs, Dan Brewery, I want them to know the God that I serve. I love it that many of them know I'm a pastor. I just love that. And if they don't know, I often tell them. So I was over at Dan Brewery with friends last night and introduced myself to them. I said, we live for Locally. I'm a pastor at Dillon Community Church. I want them to know. That puts me on notice. That puts me out there. That puts me in a fishbowl. So now they can start to evaluate. Am I going to be whatever the stereotype is or not? So when Jesus spoke, remember, there was no New Testament. So what he's talking about with this whole concept of shining our light, he's talking about living out and revealing the righteousness of the Mosaic law. Look in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15. However, there need be no poor people. Now remember, they're just getting ready to go into the promised land. This is in Deuteronomy. They're at the end of the 40 years of wandering. There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. There's the heart and soul of the law right there. There need not be any poor people, any marginalized, disenfranchised people, any of them. If we follow the righteousness of that is required of the law that Christ brings to us. If that happens, then we are being light to a dark world. That's why we have—I don't know if you're, many of you were here for the—if um, you were here for the uh, congregational meeting that we had last week. But last last year, not bragging, I'm, this is a cause of celebration. Our our benevolence committee gave out fifty-eight thousand dollars towards poor people in our county. Our food bank gave out thirty-five or something meals. You know. Uh, our our total financial giving outside the walls when you include missions is $135,000 as a church. We're not that big of a church. We have 206 members. I just praise God for that. Because that is living out the righteousness that God intended that Christians live out all along. Okay. What Jesus is saying here to Israel and by extension us is that we are vitally important to the world and we are necessary in the world to witness to God and His great power. Look at 1 Kings, one of my favorite passages. This is at the dedication of the temple. Solomon's got this chapter and a half of prayer and right in the middle of the prayer, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name. How will they hear of it? by the works that he does in his people. For they will hear of your great name, and your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you. I love that. Have you ever prayed, God, answer my non-Christian friends' desires and prayers? Answer them. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. That's what it means to be a light in the world. So here's what I want to close with. Mark, come up here. I want Mark to say, talk about this for just a moment. When we talk about shining our light, we always have in mind a certain idea. Is it possible to shine our light
1: in unhealthy ways. In an unhelpful way. In an unhelpful right? way. So, how many of you have one of these crazy things? You know, they have these lights on here, right? You can either like light up the screen, or you can turn on this little flashlight thing, and it's remarkable how bright that thing is. Well, we were while we were in Haiti on this last trip, our uh, tire blew out, and we were, uh, you know, stranded on the side of the road. Pastor Bob, with whom we were writing, called a friend of his to come out. And this young man, had probably late 20s, had no English at all. Like we could tell that. And uh, he's down on the ground in the dark. There are no street lights, there's no helpful light at all. No, I and I'm watching some of the other people in the group. Kind of flashing you know, using their lights, and they 're kind of shining them around, <laughs> and the guy 's underneath the truck right you can 't this doesn 't help if you shine the light out in the street it doesn 't help at all, and also, if you put it down underneath and he 's crawling and you shine it right in his eye, that doesn 't help either and i 'm watching this so he the only word he knew was flash. And I was like, oh, flash. He's talking flashlight. light. Somebody shine the light. So I crawled under the truck, and I'm literally trying in my mind to say, what is he trying to see? What's the best angle I could come from that will actually illuminate what he's trying to actually do and not, like, block his light to where he can't see or go in his eye? And it was something that both Jim and I picked up on to say, you can actually be harmful with light, can't you? <laughs>
0: I made a comment just a minute ago that I love telling people, introducing myself to food servers, uh, that I'm a pastor. It immediately puts me in a fishbowl. Immediately. It immediately gives them a reference point to start paying attention. How I treat them, how I tip, okay, how I do all those things. And it gives me the chance to shine the light in a healthy way. So, what does it mean? We're going to come back to this and reflect on it in just a minute. What does it mean to shine our light in a healthy way or an unhealthy way? Because you are shining. As John Calvin said, you're a mirror reflecting the glory of the Lord. You can't stop it. What you can control is what that looks like. Father, thank you for these wonderful words about being salt and light and, and once again just totally reversing our opinion of. Of what's healthy in a broken world. How we should live our lives in a broken world. Thank you. Thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.